This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 68 entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in John's Gospel? Part 5. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing for free at iTunes. And if you're a regular to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, thank you so much for listening, and welcome back. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of John to see how it defines the title Son of God in regard to Jesus Christ. Many assume that the Christology of John's Gospel is the highest out of the four canonical Gospels, expecting Son of God in John to refer to a divine pre-existing being from heaven. Today, we will look at John chapter 8 to see what we can learn about the title Son of God from the words and actions of Jesus. Before organizing the data, we should read the passage in question. I'm going to start our passage in John 8 and verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answer him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God 
hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's John 8, verses 31 through 58. A long, dense, and complicated passage, but I'm able to break out of this five pieces of evidence that helps us to understand what Son of God means in John chapter 8. Our first point is that the Son of God is a human being. Speaking as the Son of God, Jesus calls himself a man, a human being. John chapter 8 and verse 40 has Jesus saying, quote, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, end quote, using the Greek noun anthropos, which refers to a human being. So, as Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of God, and referring to God as his Father, he does so, without reservation, as a human being. This is a really important point that gets left out of many readings of John chapter 8. Our second point is that the Son of God is obediently dependent upon God. Another clue that we get regarding what Son of God means comes from the statements made by Jesus where he expresses his dependence upon God and his desire to act obediently to the Father's will. This is such a common refrain observed throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus almost sounds like a broken record at this point. Consider the following statements where Jesus expresses his obedient dependence upon God. I speak the things which I have seen with the Father. Verse 38. I told you the truth which I heard from God. Verse 40. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Verse 42. I honor my father. Verse 49. I do not seek my glory. Verse 50. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the father who glorifies me. Verse 54. Jesus never speaks as if he is co-equal 
with God the Father. Rather, as a human being, Jesus admits and acknowledges that his truth is not his own truth. Jesus received his truth from God. The same can be said of his glory. Any attempt by Jesus to glorify himself would mean nothing. His glory comes from the Father. He speaks what the Father has shown him and spoken to him, implying his obedience to the voice of God. Jesus comes in obedience to the sending of God. By honoring his Father, Jesus affirms the Father's superiority over the Son of God. Our third point today is that the Son of God represents the Father's interests. This particular chapter bears a lot of polemical language coming from both Jesus and from his Jewish opponents. Depending on how one responds to Jesus' teachings, they are either free or they are a slave. They are either children of Abraham or they aren't. They are either defined by God the Father or they are defined by the father, the devil. While the Jews insisted that, as physical descendants of Abraham, they were the true people of God, making God their father, Jesus states, on the contrary, that one's behavior is actually what demonstrates ties to God the Father. Note how Jesus stresses this critical point, the point of one's behavior and one's deeds. Jesus said, I speak the things I have seen with the Father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your Father, namely the devil. Verse 38. If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Verse 39. You are doing the deeds of your Father, namely the devil. Verse 41. If God were your Father, you would love me, for I have come from God. Verse 42. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Verse 44. He who is of God hears the words of God. You are not of God. Verse 47. From the perspective of Jesus, one is either of God by doing the deeds of Abraham, listening to God's words, and loving Jesus, or one is of the father the devil, by doing the devil's deeds. In other words, a person's deeds define to which father they possess a relationship, either God the Father or the Father the devil. Jesus hopes that his listeners will do the deeds of Abraham, will listen to the words of God spoken by Jesus, and ultimately will come to love Jesus thus putting the dependent listener in the, quote, of God camp. For these obedient listeners, being defined as of God does not mean that they existed alongside God in heaven. Rather, being defined as of God means being defined by godly behavior, by obedient deeds. What is noteworthy for our study is that this language of being of God that is used of those who faithfully listen to Jesus in John 8:47 is the very same phrase in Greek used of Jesus in 8:42. Jesus is also of God. 
using the same Greek phrase. Put differently, the way that Jesus defines his relationship with God is the very same way he desires that his listeners come to be described. As the Son of God, Jesus is of God in the same manner that those who respond appropriately to his teachings are of God. Being defined as of God does not make one into God, nor does it suggest that person existed in heaven alongside God before their birth. In fact, Jesus' language in John 8.42 about having come from God, using the Greek verb eko, also shows up in this quotation. Listen to this quotation very carefully. Quote, I have come to you as a messenger of greater things, having been sent from God, end quote. Except, this quote does not come from Jesus Christ. It comes from a man named Josephus, writing at the end of the first century about his commissioning from the Jewish God to speak with Vespasian. In Jewish War, Book 4, verse 300. No one thought that Josephus, saying that he has come as a messenger, having been sent from God, was actually sent from heaven down to earth after sitting alongside the Jewish God. This was the sort of language that messengers use, without presupposing any sort of pre-existence in heaven. As the Son of God, who was sent by God to speak the words of God, those who responded appropriately to Jesus' words were, by association, now defined as being of God, just as the Son of God was of God. Our fourth point today is that the Son of God frees people with the truth of God. Along the same lines as Jesus' invitation to listen to the words that he speaks on God's behalf, Jesus summons his listeners to continue in his word. Chapter 8 and verse 31. If they remain in his word, then they are truly disciples of Jesus, and they will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Verse 32. The Jews respond with the characteristic Johannine misunderstanding, taking Jesus' words too literally and assuming that he was talking about freedom from actual slavery. And they claim that they have never been enslaved to anyone. Verse 33, Jesus corrects them, stating plainly that those who commit sin are slaves to sin, noting also that slaves do not remain in the house, but sons do in fact remain. This recalls the Isaac and Ishmael story from the history of Israel, where Isaac was the true son from whom Abraham's descendants would come while Ishmael was born of a slave, of his mother Hagar. Then, Jesus shifts the hypothetical son in the parable to himself as the Son of God in John 8:36, stating that the Son of God is the one who makes you free. So, while Jesus states that the truth will make you free in verse 32, the truth is found to be the Son of God himself in verse 36, where the same rare verb is employed, eleftheroo, 
What does this tell us about what the Son of God means? Jesus calls himself the Son in a manner that shows solidarity with the freeing action of Abraham's son, Isaac. For the Son of God in this passage to free others with the truth, he does so as one who is likened unto the human being, Isaac, rather than suggesting that the Son of God had to be divine or had to be Yahweh himself in order to make someone free. The Son of God frees people with the truth of God as precisely the Son of God, as the human Messiah. Our fifth point today is that the Son of God is in God's plans and purposes. Jesus' statement about being before Abraham in John 8.58 is likely the most contentious verse of the entire chapter. Most English translations say, Before Abraham was, I am. This appears to most readers to be a clear self-declaration of existing prior to Abraham, possibly even claiming to be the I am of Exodus 3.14. The Jews responded to Jesus' statement in the subsequent verse by picking up stones to stone him. So clearly, they did not like what he had to say. How is it that the human Son of God, the Messiah, could make a statement like, before Abraham was, I am? Let's examine this in three parts. First, we need to figure out what this I am phrase means. Second, we need to address the reference to existing prior to Abraham. Third, we should seek to understand why the Jews turned to violence after hearing the statement of John 8.58. Let's take these issues in order. First, what are we to make of the I am statement? The Greek used behind our English translations is egoimi, which is a first-person pronoun plus the verb to be. C.K. Barrett rightly notes in his commentary on the Gospel of John that, quote, Though egoimi is in itself, as Greek, a meaningless expression, end quote. That's what C.K. Barrett says in his Gospel of John commentary on page 342. The verb to be needs to have an object in order for it to be intelligible. So many translations actually will render egoimi as I am he, putting an object after the verb to be, meaning something as casual as I am the one, the person in reference. Yep, that person is me. When egoimi was first introduced in the Gospel of John, and thus likely setting a precedence on how it should be interpreted, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, asked Jesus about the coming Messiah in John 4.25. Jesus responds to her search for the Messiah by saying in John 4.26, I am he who is speaking to you, using the Greek egoimi. Jesus' answer points to himself as the intended reference clearly shown in context. She was asking about the Messiah. Jesus says, I am he. I am the Messiah. Fast forward to John chapter 8, our present passages chapter, and we see Jesus again using 
the Greek ego me, I am he, as a self-reference to being the Messiah. Note how the phrase is used in John 8:28. Quote, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, end quote. Here, the phrase, I am he, clearly refers to the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is a messianic title. So the first use of egoimi, I am he, in John's Gospel, refers to the Messiah, back in chapter 4 and verse 26, and the same conclusion can be reached earlier in the dialogue of John chapter 8, with Jesus claiming to be the messianic Son of Man. It seems fair to faithfully continue this usage in our present passage, John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am he, that is, I am the Messiah. Some argue that Jesus is actually claiming to be the I am from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, where God reveals himself to Moses. But the Greek in Exodus 3:14 is not egoimi, but a different phrase entirely, the phrase o-own. So we can discount immediately the Exodus 3.14 speculation. Jesus in John 8.58 is not quoting from Exodus 3.14. Returning to the comments of C.K. Barrett in his Gospel of John commentary, he rightly points interpreters in the correct direction. Barrett says, quote, It is not, however, correct to infer either for the present passage or for others in which egoimi occurs that John wishes to equate Jesus with the supreme God of the Old Testament, end quote. He says that on page 342. C.K. Barrett says that Jesus claiming to be the egoimi, the I am, is not equating himself with the God of the Old Testament. Jesus' response being that I am the Messiah, makes sense as a response to the Jews' question already stated in 853, where they said, Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Surely the Messianic Son of God outranked even the patriarch Abraham in importance. So what are we to make of Jesus claiming to be the Messiah prior to Abraham? I feel that, if I'm honest, this is a reference to the Messiah being before Abraham in time. No way to get around the issue of pre-existence. However, and this is extremely important, pre-existence was understood in Judaism in two distinct ways either literal pre-existence or pre-existence in God's plans. The Jewish rabbinical work, Genesis Rabbah, in chapter 1 and verse 4, discusses six things that pre-existed the creation of the world, but it goes on to distinguish them in these words. Quote, Some of them were actually created while the creation of others was already contemplated, end quote. As you can see, a differentiation is made between actual preexistence and preexistence contemplated 
in God's mind. It is also noteworthy that the Genesis Rabbah passage goes on to speak of the name of the Messiah, and it puts the name of the Messiah in the category of the things that were contemplated, not literally pre-existing. In doing so, Genesis Rabbah cites Psalm 72 and verse 17 as its scriptural proof, where it says that, quote, his name exists prior to the sun, end quote. Now, Psalm 72 is a royal messianic psalm about the ideal Israelite king, regularly empowered with God's prerogatives and privileges. But when we look at the Hebrew of Psalm 72, 17, it does speak of the name of the Messianic King and request that that name increase prior to the sun. Note how both Psalm 72 and Genesis Rabbah speak of the name of the Messiah. Not so much the Messiah himself, but the Messiah's name. It is the messianic name that existed before the creation of the world, prior to the sun in the sky. So there's nothing unsettling about Jesus claiming, I am he, I am the Messiah, and I was before Abraham. The name of the Messiah was contemplated in God's plans and purposes far before Abraham was born. And Jesus, in John 8.58, is claiming to be that promised Messiah. This, of course, makes him greater than Abraham and the prophets. It seems most natural, based on the Jewish messianic expectation, to regard the reference to being the Messiah prior to Abraham to refer to a preexistence in God's plans and purposes rather than to literal pre-existence alongside God in heaven. Lastly, why do the Jews pick up stones to kill Jesus? Many have assumed that Jesus was actually claiming to be God, so the response of the Jews was to eradicate wrongful divine claims supposedly spoken by Jesus. But does their violent response work with the suggestion that I am he, ego in me, refers to the Messiah. I think it does. Keep in mind that Jesus has already been accused of having a demon and being a Samaritan in John 8:48, due to the statements constantly misunderstood by his Jewish dialogue partners. From the perspective of the Jews, Jesus appeared to be crazy, demonized, and a non-Jewish Samaritan, rather than an obedient Son of God speaking on the Father's behalf. So, for this oddball Jesus, who appeared to have a demon, to claim that he was the Messiah promised before Abraham, this was understood by the Jews as a false messianic claim. And since Jesus was claiming that God was his Father, this outlandish claim would bring dishonor and shame upon God by extension, according to the Jews. In other words, Jesus made a messianic claim to be the promised Messiah, 
but the Jews disagreed that Jesus was the true messianic son of God, assuming that he was a false messiah, a demonized pretender. And the law of Moses required to put unclean blasphemers to death by stoning. In short, Jesus didn't have to claim to be divine or Yahweh himself in order to provoke a violent response from the Jews. For a messianic claim regarded to be false would also stir up the anger of the Jewish people, which seems to have occurred in John chapter 8. In conclusion, we have observed that John chapter 8 is a long and complex section of scripture, no doubt about it. Throughout the passage, Jesus claims to be the Son of God and regularly regards God as his Father. Our initial quest sought to understand how Son of God was defined in this passage. First, we have learned that the Son of God is a human being, a claim that Jesus made himself. Second, we have also observed that the human Son of God was also obedient to God the Father and spoke of his constant dependence upon God. There was no suggestion that the Son was co-equal with the Father. Third, the Son of God also appeared as one sent and authorized by God, representing the Father's interest and summoning others to align their deeds and lives with God. Fourth, Jesus spoke of himself as the Son of God that sets people free with the truths of God. And in doing so, Jesus likens himself to Isaac, the human son of Abraham, through whom God's purposes were continued on into the world. Lastly, Jesus, as the messianic son of God, claimed to be just that. I am he. I am the Messiah who was contemplated in God's plans and purposes before the creation of the world and prior to the Son. So despite surface-level readings of John chapter 8, Jesus does not claim to be Yahweh and does not claim to be co-equal with the Father. Jesus is a human being, the Son of God, the Messiah who obeyed God as a faithful son. His reference to being before Abraham needs to be interpreted within the inner nuancing Jews made about preexistence, being either literal or contemplated in God's plans. And there is strong evidence to suggest that Jesus spoke of being contemplated in God's plans and purposes as the true Jewish Messiah. Please look forward to our following episodes, where we will continue to dig into the Gospel of John in its understanding of the title, Son of God, as it pertains to Jesus Christ. If you think this podcast is great and that it would speak truth into the lives of your friends and family, please share it with others. And if you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's description or the attached document for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.